This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. Welcome to the human side of healthcare. Delighted to have you with us today. We're going to talk about uh, some things that we really need to know about related to looking at faith community, domestic violence, and we couldn't have a better individual to interview than Donna Stauber. She's the program manager for Faith Community Health at Baylor Scott & White. Welcome to the show, Donna. Well, thank you. I am delighted to be here today. You know, for our listeners, many may not know what faith community health is. Could you explain? Absolutely. With Baylor Scott and White, uh, we have the Office of Mission and Ministry, and within that, a program called Faith in Action that has several sections that are busy helping the underserved uh, around our state. And Faith Community Health is a branch of that Faith in Action initiative Uh, And our goal is to help people reach optimal health by integrating faith communities with healthcare to provide uh, more effective patient navigation, education, and support in hopes that we help create healthier communities. And a little bit more, our mission statement in Faith Community Health really says a lot about what we do. The Faith Community Health Program of Baylor Scott & White seeks to share in the work of empowering local faith communities to foster health and wellness. And we are committed to serving people of all faiths, those of none, and our program serves everyone regardless of race, religion, or creed. So we are really there all about helping the underserved where they are, reach the resources that they need to be healthy. You know, when you talk in terms of helping the underserved, and truly faith in action, you know, that dovetails so well with the human side of healthcare. Could you break down some of the areas that you help serve these people that need your help? Absolutely. Uh, we, uh, we work very closely with the community health uh, department at Baylor Scott and White, and we work together by utilizing our community health needs assessments Several healthcare systems in town went together and we did a, a community health needs assessment and that pretty much shows the disparities. So a lot of the things that we are helping people with, uh, and as you can imagine, sometimes people leave the healthcare setting after being in the hospital, after being in a clinic, and a medical professional is giving them instructions and discharge instructions and the patient is not really understanding a lot of what's going on and they walk away not really knowing what's going on. And so with, with us and our faith community health program, we're hoping to fill in that gap. We identify those patients through health professionals that say, Hey, this person may be having trouble getting their medications and through actual research that we're doing in our faith community health program, the number one program, the number one problem is that people are lonely and isolated and have, many of them have no one to support them through their healthcare regimen after they leave the hospital or the emergency room or the clinic. 
And that is our number one patient issue is loneliness and isolation. And our second one is access to care. They, which could mean transportation. It could mean don't know where to go or don't have a way to get food or to get clothing or to try to find out and reach the resources that I need, we need. And then probably the third one that we hear the most need from our patients is understanding what they're supposed to do once they leave the healthcare facility where their appointment is or getting their appointment or where they're supposed to pick up supplies. So those are our top three areas through our faith community health patients. We've identified that that's where we reach in and fill in the gap. And we consider ourselves as a second level of support for patients. So as you were talking and answering that question, you mentioned transportation, you mentioned prescriptions, you mentioned things such as helping them kind of navigate what to do once they leave, loneliness. You really complement and work on many of the social drivers of health. And it's almost like at time of discharge, you help them plan to deal with some of those issues. Would that be a fair assessment? Sure, it would be. And and what the, they plan before they leave the hospital with a discharge plan, they actually call it. But I think many of them leave not really understanding or knowing what that plan says. So when these health professionals identify patients with these needs of maybe not understanding or hearing or being able to read well, that's when they refer patients to our program. And we're that second level of, of support to them to help plan how they are going to get to the doctor, help them plan, hey, if you've got a problem getting your medications while I'm here, let's call in your nurse and see how we can find support for you. So they are more the people that help carry out the plans that were given them when they left the hospital or the clinic. So in reviewing the number one loneliness, I can only imagine with COVID-19 and this pandemic, loneliness and really feeling the need to be loved and befriended has gotten just worse. Would you say it's gotten worse during the COVID era? Absolutely. And, you know, we, we have some of our volunteers are lonely because they can't go see their patient now uh, because great friendships uh, result. But I would say uh, that was the main thing when all this happened. That was my personal main concern for these uh, patients. How are we going to reach out to, to help these people that are already isolated and lonely? And I'm really happy to tell you that about a month ago, we did a survey. We called every one of the patients. We've tried to stay in really close contact with them. And we asked them, we had conversations, how are you doing? Or is there other things you need? We know we can't come to the house right now, but how can we support you? And 75% of our patients were still having their needs met and they were still able to be in contact with their volunteer. The ones that were able to do FaceTime, that were technically astute to be able to do uh, work with each other in FaceTime, uh, and also telephone reassurance, their call and having conversations. And then if they did have something that they need, you know, the volunteer could drop it on the porch and leave so that both of them are safe. But yes, I would say the isolation and the loneliness 
that was existing before COVID has even been heightened during this time. And we're just continuing to work with our faith communities and with our volunteers and with our patients to make sure that they feel connected the best way we can. And was very happy to hear that they were satisfied. 75% were satisfied that somebody was still reaching out to them. So we were very happy to hear that. Thank you, Donna. Helping others who need it. That's really a big point of connection that many of us are looking for during COVID-19. So if you are with a faith community or you would just love to volunteer, email us at radio at DFWHC. That's like DFWHospitalCouncil.org. And we'll connect you with Donna and her team. Quick break and we're back on the human side of healthcare. Stay with us. This is the Human Side of Healthcare on 1080 KRLD and the Radio.com app, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. And welcome to the Human Side of Healthcare. We're delighted that you're with us today. And we're going to talk about a subject that I think will be very interesting to our listeners. And that's dealing with some of the common myths about autism. We couldn't have a better person with us today than Katie Dooley, who's a Ph.D., licensed psychologist at Children's Health and also serves assistant professor at UT Southwestern. Katie, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Let's start with ASD. Can you define that for our listeners? So we... A lot of times we say autism um, because it used to be that there were different designations. So there were aut- there was autism and there was an uh, Asperger's disorder, Asperger's syndrome. Um, in 2013, our diagnostic classification changed so that all of those diagnoses were assumed under um, what is now called autism spectrum disorders, and we call it ASD for short. Um, but yeah, so I might um, say ASD or autism spectrum disorders in, in my answers and talking about it, but it means the same thing. So yeah, there is this common myth that people who have autism spectrum disorders may not want friends or relationships relationships, but really they may not respond to social situations like others without an autism spectrum disorder. So for instance, they may not be, um, you know, the one to approach others as a way to engage them. However, that doesn't mean that they don't desire social connections. More likely, they do in fact want to have relationships with others, but they may not know how to um, independently initiate or even maintain those relationships. So people with autism spectrum disorders may have um, difficulties responding to or recognizing emotions in others, as well as, you know, some difficulties with recognizing nonverbal communication. And because of that, people with autism spectrum disorders usually benefit from the guidance of others in these areas. And this is where therapies and social skills trainings that explicitly teach these skills come into play. But it does not mean that they don't want those relationships with others. So when we think in terms of ASD, is there a cure for that? Or is that more like a chronic illness where you have to have it over a prolonged period of time? 
Yeah, this is a common question too. So parents often ask um, me if there's a cure or even a medication that their child can take that will rid rid them of autism spectrum symptoms. And at this time, there's no medication or known cure for autism spectrum disorders. However, we know that there are several therapies that can be beneficial to those um, on the autism spectrum. So that can include uh, speech therapy, occupational therapy, physical therapy. And additionally, while it's not a cure, um, longitudinal research has demonstrated that the most effective therapy, especially for children diagnosed in early childhood, is called Applied Behavioral Analysis, or ABA for short. And what ABA does is it teaches new skills and small incremental steps using behavioral approaches. And again, while this is not a cure, it does improve functional skills. Well, Again, there's no cure for autism spectrum disorders. We know that the outcomes for children with an autism spectrum disorder who receive early intensive intervention are better when compared to those who do not receive these services. So more simply, early intervention teaches children skills that allow um, allow them to be more successful later on because they, they can continue to build upon the skills that are taught through services in early childhood. So let me ask you this, some of the symptoms related to ASD, does everyone with ASD have the same symptoms? The short answer is no. <laughs> um, so again, earlier I talked about the diagnostic criteria changing so that uh, it was more of a broad term of the autism spectrum disorder because symptoms vary so widely. So sure, there's a set of symptoms that an individual must meet in order to meet criteria for the diagnosis, but how those symptoms present varies quite significantly. Uh, so, for example, in order to meet criteria for an autism spectrum disorder, a person must either by history or currently um, experience restricted interests or interests over and above what we would expect for their age or repetitive behaviors. But this can look differently for many different people. So one person with an autism spectrum disorder might rock back and forth and flap their hands, while another person may make more subtle um, but repetitive finger movements that you may not notice if you're, if you're not looking for it. Um, one person with an autism spectrum disorder might not have or make appropriate eye contact, while another may shift their gaze from one person to another pretty frequently. The way that autism spectrum disorders actually present in people are quite varied and rarely look the same across people. That's why, I don't know if you've heard this, but that's why there's a saying that if you know one person with autism, then you know one person with autism, because it's that one person that you know and not everybody else who may be on the spectrum. So when we, when we look at ASD, can people with ASD live independently? Are some that can at least do things for themselves and are independent of having to rely on other people? Can you elaborate? Yeah, that's a good question. So similar to what I was talking about with the symptoms being varied amongst people on um the autism spectrum, the cognitive abilities amongst people with autism spectrum disorders also vary widely. So just like in the general population of people. So similarly, the long-term outcomes for people with an autism spectrum disorder vary. So again, like the general population, many people with autism spectrum disorders grow up to go to college, have jobs, live independently, and 
Still, others require some level of support, which can be indirect services, all the way to full-time specialized services. Um, approximately 30% of individuals with autism spectrum disorders also have an intellectual disability, which, you know, um, is an IQ score of less than 70 and also difficulties with adaptive functioning or daily living skills. But that being said, it's a myth or it's inaccurate to automatically assume that because an individual has an autism spectrum disorder that they are cognitively or learning impaired. And in fact, roughly half of individuals with autism spectrum disorders have average or above average cognitive abilities. Katie, you know, a controversial discussion, and I bet many of our listeners would love to hear your opinion on this. Do you think vaccinations causes or triggers ASD? So a common myth is that um, vaccines cause autism or that we know exactly what causes autism. So one, so certainly one myth that we hear often, especially in the press, is that vaccines cause autism. The truth is that we, um, that when we look at years and years of scientific evidence, there is no known link between vaccines and autism spectrum disorders. So what is true is that when parents start to notice differences in their child's social skills, it's usually before the age of three. Frankly, honestly, it's, it's usually hard for parents to distinguish nuanced differences in social communication skills before this age, but they're usually there. Also, in autism spectrum disorders, it can happen where children experience a regression in developmental skills, so they lose skills that they had previous developed, like uh, language skills, around this time. And then what else happens before a child turns three years of age? They get lots of vaccinations. So again, research tells us that these signs occur in children with autism spectrum disorders who receive vaccinations and those who do not receive vaccinations. So we still have the same, we have the same autism symptoms in children who receive vaccinations and those who don't. The same is true when we look at scientific findings or other common myths about things that uh, cause autism, which don't, which are, you know, diet, screen time, parenting styles. Research tells us that these things also are not linked to what causes autism spectrum disorders. So the truth is we don't know what causes autism spectrum disorders, but it's likely more a combination of factors, including genetics and um, coding changes in DNA. That's Katie Dooley, Ph.D. from Children's Health and an associate professor at University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. According to a recent study published in 2017, about one in six children aged three through 17 were diagnosed with a developmental disability. So a very important topic. Now, can we talk about the C word briefly? COVID-19 is something that I know we are all up to here with. And yet at the very time we want to relax and let go, we need to be tightening up because all across North Texas, the state of Texas and the country, the numbers are going up sharply. And just as it was announced in the news this week, a 30-year-old passenger on a recent flight back in the summer died in the airplane from COVID-19. It's going to be easier to catch it as the community spread increases. We all need to do our part to tap it down. And that's our message from the human side of healthcare. Please be diligent and thank you in advance for wearing that mask. Now, when we come back, we're going to talk about another health issue 
that affects 800,000 people every year. You'll find out what it is next on the human side of healthcare. The DFW Hospital Council, along with our over 90 member hospitals in North Texas, are proud to bring you the human side of healthcare with Council President and CEO Stephen Love and co host Thomas Miller. And welcome to the human side of healthcare. We're going to continue discussions today on something we've talked about previously stroke. We could not have a better person, a better expert to talk to today. Dr. Robin Novakovich White, who is the Associate Professor, Neuroradiology Division at UT Southwestern Medical Center. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Mr. Love. Thank you for having us. I feel this is an important issue to discuss, and I'm honored that you're willing to air this conversation. You know, we've passed 211,000, 212,000 people that have died in this country from COVID-19. It's horrible. Our hearts ache for the family members that have had to deal with that. Can you compare that a little bit to stroke in this country? Absolutely. So stroke currently is the leading cause of disability in the United States. Every year, About 795,000 individuals suffer from a new or recurrent stroke in the United States. On average, that means every 40 seconds, one person in the U.S. suffers from a stroke, and about every four minutes, one person dies as a consequence of a stroke, and that equals to about 129,000 deaths that occur annually related to strokes. You know, those are really frightening statistics, which brings me to my next question. Previously, we've talked about people afraid to call 911. They're afraid to come to the hospital because of their fear of COVID-19. Can you impress on our listeners why, when those symptoms come upon them related to stroke, they should immediately call 911? Yes, absolutely. EMS use by patients who are suffering from a stroke has been independently associated with earlier arrival for patients to the emergency room, quicker evaluations when they do get to the emergency room. It translates to more rapid treatment and more patients being eligible to receive the clot-busting medications. So using EMS to get to the emergency room when a loved one has a stroke translates to potential better outcomes for them and could save their life. Unfortunately, Mr. Love, only about 60% of Americans use EMS agents to make it to the emergency room when they suffer a stroke. That is uh, unbelievable, and it makes such a difference. So to our listeners out there, if you're having any of those symptoms that we talked about, please call 911. Let me pivot just a little bit. Sometimes the symptoms may not be as pronounced as you would prescribe. Let me give you an example. Do sometimes people, for example, maybe have blurred vision or they're having some difficulty seeing, and they call their ophthalmologist, or they call their primary care physician, which they mean well, but that 
postpones getting them to the emergency room. Have you seen those situations? Yes, absolutely. So first, stroke symptoms, the key to recognizing if someone is having a stroke is to remember sudden onset of a symptom or if they wake from sleep and they have a new onset of some neurologic deficit. And that can be sometimes very subtle symptoms like loss of balance, visual blurring or loss of vision, double vision. When they have these symptoms and it coincides with a sudden onset, there are times that people will try to ignore it, see if their symptoms will go away, or sometimes they'll have what was called a mini stroke or transient ischemic attack or a TIA. And that's where the symptoms get better and go away completely. What's important to remember is that is still an emergency because patients that have these fluctuating symptoms or mild symptoms or even symptoms that go completely away are at risk of having a larger, more permanent stroke. And we want to intervene and recognize that early so that we may be able to give treatments or therapies to prevent the stroke from getting worse or coming back. You know, that's great advice. When you think in terms of, say, cardiac issues, some seem to be minor and some are the very most severe. Is it similar in strokes? Are there like a catastrophic category related to strokes? Could you define that for our listeners and then explain why treatment as soon as possible is so important? Yes, absolutely. So much like many illnesses that we encounter, there is a range of severity that strokes can have an impact to the patient. And so some strokes may start off with mild symptoms that could get worse, and some strokes may only have mild deficits. The worst types of strokes are ones that involve the large blood vessels or the large arteries, and we call that an LVO or large vessel occlusion. And that basically means that there's a blockage in one of the large arteries that supplies blood flow to the brain. The large vessel occlusions are really the ones that translate to some of our worst outcomes and even have the higher risk of death associated with it. We know that in these patients that have large vessel occlusions, or LVOs again, that the best treatment is to get to the emergency room so that we can do an intervention to actually open up the artery like the cardiologists do. I've always thought as a lay person, you know, keep that blood pressure checked. Make sure your blood pressure is in an acceptable range that your primary care physician wants. Is it possible to keep your blood pressure in the range it should be, but you still have a stroke? Yes, unfortunately it is. There are different uh, what we call etiologies or causes to stroke. And some come from the risk factors that we have from our what we call comorbidities um, or other health issues like high blood pressure, diabetes, elevated cholesterol. But then we can also see strokes caused from other um, causes like an injury to a blood vessel, which we call a dissection. It can come from if we have 
a hypercoagulable syndrome, which means our blood is stickier and wants to form clots, which is one of the um, concerns that we feel might be related to some of the strokes that we see in COVID patients that have a severe infection. There can also be other causes of clots forming in the heart that can travel to the arteries and the brain. So there's a lot of different risk factors for strokes, not just the ones that we are more aware of. You know, you gave some very sobering statistics as we opened this segment. And what I want to follow up on is this. Many, many years ago, I was talking to my primary care physician about some of the great advances in medication on how to treat stroke. And he actually said, well, one of those is kind of like snake venom. And I I know you and I chatted about this. That was many years ago. But the good news, even with those sobering statistics you gave, there are breakthroughs coming through every day related to strokes. Has there been good medical advancement in the last five to 10 years in strokes? Absolutely. So for one thing, we have the clot-busting medication that we, I think, should all know about, or hopefully we all know about, called um, Altapoise. There are newer medications that are being looked at, so that's one area where we are having improvement. But the other area where we are advancing is in the procedures that we do to go in and reopen the blood vessel. Over the last few years, and it's actually very recent, in which guideline statements came out in 2015 indicating that these treatments improve lives. And then in 2018, we were able to extend the window from up from six hours from onset of symptoms out to 24 hours. And each year, more and more studies are being done, new devices are coming um, available, better techniques for trying to open the blood vessels. So I think as time is going, we are learning more and we are getting better at opening the blood vessels faster and helping patients to reduce their um, disabilities associated with strokes. If you had a patient that you had given the medication and they had made significant improvement, but still at the time you were going to discharge them from the acute care setting. Are there instances where you may could send them to physical rehabilitation to help them improve even more? Absolutely. So we know that patients that suffer from some amount of disability after stroke are going to make their best improvement if they are participating in rehabilitation. And the key is getting them active and getting them into rehabilitation early. And you even want to kind of look for more of rehabilitation centers that are specializing in stroke and know some of the unique differences that a stroke patient may have from someone else who's suffering from some injury. You're listening to a captivating interview with Dr. Robin Novakovich-White from University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. You know, COVID numbers are big. They're enormous. But let's don't forget that every 40 seconds in this country, somebody deals with a stroke. Almost 800,000 people every year. So coming up next, we're going to put feet to the fire on this and talk about game plan. What do you do if you feel something wrong? And particularly when... 
And this and all of our interviews are on our podcast, The Human Side of Healthcare. It's on all the major podcast players. Quick break for some traffic and weather, and then we're back on The Human Side of Healthcare. Stay with us. We're continuing our conversation on how you can empower yourself to have the best health possible in today's ever-changing healthcare environment. This is The Human Side of Healthcare with DFW Hospital Council President and CEO Stephen Love and co-host Thomas Miller. And welcome back. We're going to jump right back into our conversation with Dr. Robin Novakovich-White from the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center talking about stroke. It affects someone in America every 40 seconds. So what about putting a family game plan together so that we know what we're going to do in advance if suddenly we have some of those stroke symptoms? You know, that is a really great question. Um, I also work in the neurocritical care unit. And even separate from stroke, just in any amount of neurologic injury, One of the conversations that I often have to have with families is, you know, what is our understanding that your loved one would want if they were able to sit here with us? What types of disabilities would they find acceptable? What type of interventions would they want? Would they want to have a breathing tube in place if they needed it? Would they want to have cardiac shock if their heart stopped beating would they want chest compressions so having an open conversation with your loved ones so that they know what is the amount of disability that you would find acceptable if you could for instance dress yourself and handle most of your activities of daily living and take care of them on your own but have some amount of disability that you had to deal with for instance, walking with a walker, would that be acceptable? And trying to outline for your loved one so that if they are in that situation where they have to make those decisions for you, they have an understanding of what you would find acceptable. That is a great point and brings up so much of, I'm sure, the world that you live in. Take us into your world for a second and what are some of your biggest issues in dealing with an acute patient? So that's somebody that all of a sudden had this happen that you have to work through with the families. So unfortunately, not all interventions are going to be successful. And sometimes patients make it to the emergency room late. And even if we do open the blood vessel, they still suffer from severe disability. And so as a loved one, I think you want to understand, again, what are the disabilities that would be acceptable. And you have to think about, in that situation, the differences between being able to walk unassisted, being able to live independently, being able to breathe on your own or needing a ventilator, um, being able to eat uh, or having a feeding tube to supply nutrition and a feeding tube is something that goes into the stomach um, that can feed a patient who can't swallow. And so it really takes, and this might also be something where you want to kind of sit down with your primary doctor and think about and talk about what are all the different options that might come up if you suffered from disabilities, living in a nursing home versus being at home, being able to take care of yourself like showering, I'm using the bathroom independently. What are the things that you would find acceptable or unacceptable? And trying to have that open discussion. And maybe you can't 
cover everything on your own with your family member, but if they have a sense of what you would and would not like, then if that ever should happen, the physician that is caring for the patient should be able to help walk you through it and try and understand if that seems consistent with what you know about what their wants would be. I'd like to walk back to the middle of the night. Here's a couple lying in bed. One of them wakes up and says to their partner, I am incredibly dizzy, and maybe they're even having trouble mouthing the words. Isn't our first reaction to say, well, let me get you some tea, or let me put a cold thing on your neck, and let's just see what happens, versus getting on the phone right now? What, how do you advise us on that? So I think if there's any uncertainty, 911, go to the emergency room, let the specialist help work through, could this be a stroke? We have imaging that we can do to identify if you are having a stroke. And I think that it is too often passed off for minor symptoms as nothing, it's trivial, let me wait a little bit, let me ignore it. It is something that could save the life of your family member if you know to take it serious, whether they wake up with the symptoms or they develop sudden onset while they're in front of you. You want to take it seriously, 911. You want to get to the closest emergency room because you may be saving their life. Now, from the time that somebody wakes up in bed to the time they get to the hospital, to the time they get to imaging, to possibly the time they get to the operating room, just basically, so in in language that we can understand, what's happening in the body during all of that time? That's a great question. So when an artery is blocked, when we are having a stroke, again, time is of the essence. They use the, the term, time is brain. And that is because we know for every minute that that artery is occluded, there's risk or excuse me, blocked, the artery is blocked, that there is risk that the brain tissue is dying, that those neurons or brain cells that are part of the brain are dying as the blood vessel is is blocked. And the only way that we can save that brain tissue is to try and reopen the artery. So the longer it goes, the greater the blood supply is cut off, the more tissue, the more of those cells die, the bigger the problem. The worse the outcome. have one more question. If I want to know the condition of my heart, I can go to the cardiologist and go through a battery of tests and have a pretty good idea. If I want to know if I'm edging into diabetes, I can go to the endocrinologist and I can find out. How do I know if I'm going to be at risk of a stroke? I'm 61 years old almost and want to know. So this is where it's really important to make sure that you are partaking in your yearly health screen with your primary doctor. The risk factors for stroke are very similar to that of um, your cardiac risks, high blood pressure, diabetes, being overweight, elevated cholesterol, smoking, um, an unhealthy uh, diet. All of these things uh, and more can translate to increased risk of stroke. Working with your primary doctor to control your risk factors can lower your risk of having a stroke. We call that primary prevention. At some point, if they identify that you have blockage in your arteries, let's say in your neck, 
they're going to send you for imaging and then they may send you to a specialist that can open the artery and that can, again, help try and prevent a stroke from occurring. Is there a number one contributing factor to stroke? That is a good question. Um, I don't think that there is any one answer, but I think that blood pressure um, and smoking are some of our greatest risk factors. There's been some studies that have shown that for every millimeter of mercury that you lower the blood pressure, that you can improve or reduce the risk of stroke. Is that the number one leading cause? Um, I think that, again, we have multiple variables to look at, but I think blood pressure and smoking are probably one of the most common risk factors that we see. You know, that's great advice. Let's assume you're treating me because I've had a stroke, and let's say it it was a mini-stroke. Thankfully, it wasn't that severe. Once I have a stroke, does the percentage go up of the likelihood that I potentially could have another one? Yes, that is a good question. So once we've had a stroke, whether it be a TIA or mini stroke or a stroke, we now want to focus on what we call secondary prevention because we know that you are at increased risk of having another stroke. Once you have had a stroke, it really becomes important to identify what was the cause of the stroke. Was it from our risk factors and the narrowing in an artery that we need to address? Or is it because it's something coming from our heart or an injury in a blood vessel? And so the therapies that we use to treat it are going to be different dependent on the cause. But yes, we are at increased risk for having a second stroke. So it's very important to make sure that we are controlling the risk factors that led to the first one. This and all of our interviews, which have been really good lately, are on our podcast. It's the human side of healthcare on all the major podcast players. Would love to have you check those out. And like Steve has been saying, we don't want a COVID recurrence, so please wear that mask. We'll see you next week on the human side of healthcare.